0: As you make your way there to Ecclesiastes chapter 5, don't be afraid of the table of contents. You just kind of open to Psalms and make your way a couple chapters, a couple books to the right, and you'll be right where you belong. Um, and and we'll, we'll begin in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. We'll read a little bit into the beginning of chapter 6 and lump them all together and talk about that together. So this is what we've found uh, in the time that we've been in Ecclesiastes. The best way to, to summarize it, I think, is uh, life under the sun is poof. Uh, life under the sun, over and over and over and over again in the book of Ecclesiastes, the King Solomon shares his wisdom, and he says that life under the sun, that is apart from God, is meaningless. It is vanity this word over and over and over again that's it's, it's on, an onomatopoeia literally it's like hevel it's like poof it's meant to sound like the breath that dissipates and is visible for a moment in the winter but then becomes it vanishes immediately and this is this is what life apart from god is like if you try to find meaning if you try to find a substantive sense of identity apart from what god gives to us and has done for us then you will be found as he says, like chasing the wind. Poof. It's like it just, it, it, it's impossible. It's, you can't get a hold of it. And so that is what we see here over and over and over again. Even this word shows up 37 times, which would seem like a random, meaningless number, but it's orchestrated in such a way that even the mathematic value, we saw this of the consonants of Hevel is 37. And so While his structure may be sometimes hard to follow in the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon has a very clear theme. He has a very clear idea and a point he wants to get across. If you look for meaning and identity in this life apart from God, you will find meaninglessness. Poof. Vanity. So this is what we do. We ultimately find our identity in what God has done for us in Jesus. And we are called to take heart in the ultimate purpose, nearness, and even the timing, as we saw, of God. So I want to invite you into considering the possibility that God is in charge, uh, that it might not even be a a coincidence that you're here, that there might be some explanation. It might possibly be for your joy. Maybe God is doing something, and he's even drawn us into being into it. And we see, beginning at the beginning of chapter 4, For the next six chapters, Ecclesiastes is going to look a lot more like the book of Proverbs, which is the book that separates Ecclesiastes from Psalms. The five books of wisdom literature, Psalm, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, uh, and and Job, excuse me, and so all of these lumped together make the wisdom literature of the Old Testament, and this particular one starts to look from here on out like Proverbs, like just kind of a rambling of wisdom. It will seem disjointed, and so here's where I want to tell you where we're going, and, and for the next few weeks, this is what it'll look like, right? There'll be kind of a randomness to the things that we discuss, and then we'll be like, okay, now that we've discussed how meaningless these things are, thank God that he has given us identity and life and hope in Jesus, like, so it's going to be hard to land the plane for the next few weeks. It's going to feel really disjointed, right? Uh, now, if you remember our time in the Gospel of Mark, that's what this is going to feel like. He's like, immediately, he's got ADHD like me, immediately distracted. He's like, and then Jesus immediately did this, and then immediately Jesus did this, and then immediately Jesus did this. Squirrel, right? Like, and he's just easily distracted. And the same thing is true here for the book of Ecclesiastes. He's like, it's almost as if you can see him kind of writing notes of wisdom as he's walking around, uh, amidst uh, uh, some things happening, and he's like, um, "Yeah, you 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 know don't don't wear white after Labor Day or whatever you're supposed to. I don't know what that is." And then he's like, uh, "Also, um, make sure to change your socks. Also, it's better if uh, it's man. I shouldn't have eaten Thai food last night. Um, oh, thank God that he gives us meaning. Like that. That's that's the logical progression for the next six chapters is going to feel like that. It's going to be like." Well, then there's that. Well, look at that, that too. And, and then, oh, thank God that he gives us purpose. So here we go. We're going to run through some, some random th- things or seemingly random things thrown together. We find this picture of worship and religion right next to politics and government, right next to wealth and money. Verse 1. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God to draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know what they are doing. Or excuse me, that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few, for a dream comes with much busyness and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying for it, for He has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin. And do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice And destroy the work of your hands. For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher. And there are yet higher ones over them. but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. And he came from his mother's wombs, And anger. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. This is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is... The gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him power to enjoy them. But a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's, good, with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity, and it goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the one place. As is the case with the last few weeks, I hope to invite you intentionally into a kind of temporary sorrow. I'm going to be a downer for the next few weeks. I'm going to intentionally, hopefully, invite you into a kind of sadness, a kind of despair. Not because I hate you, not because I want to drag you down, but I think that what Solomon, a man who achieved everything he ever wanted leaves us with this opportunity to consider the possibility that to despair of things in this life apart from God is the beginning and the birthplace of genuine and authentic and substantive joy in God. To begin to consider the hopelessness of life apart from God under the sun is the birthplace of true and lasting hope in what God has done for us. To begin to realize our own futility. To realize the futility of our own life is to begin to understand and appreciate and even love God for His abundant giving to us. So what seems like I think some reflections, some of them kind of ask, half glass full, and some of them, well, let's be honest, the majority of them half, half, glass, half glass empty, easy for me to say, then, then you begin to see here, he, he's kind of inviting us into what I would argue is a temporary despair. And my hope is, if you are currently finding your joy, your identity, your sense of accomplishment, your sense of value in something that you have done, or something that you've found apart from God, my hope is that our time together in Ecclesiastes will rob you of that joy. I, I'm, I'm not even afraid. I hope you find despair of those things. And in fact, it is God's mercy to you for you to despair of those things such that He can, as they slip out of your own hands, He can replace them with something greater. And so He begins in this chapter, after following up on this last chapter, reflecting upon what community will look like amidst oppression what it really means to be called by God and given an identity from him alone and knowing his timing, we find ourselves in some very practical things. First, he begins to talk about worship. Then, verse 8 and 9, he talks very briefly about some political and and governmental things. And then for the rest, all the way to the sixth chapter of chapter 6, he kind of lumps in a bunch of reflections upon a person's toil and wealth and money. So you heard it. At least the top three things that polite company are not supposed to discuss on a regular basis are lumped here religion, politics, and money. Now, I shared this with you before. I hope that if we do intentionally talk about things that are countercultural and tough to talk about, we only want to do so as much as Jesus did. Uh, Jesus had a powerful way of doing some of these things, and here's where I would start. This is where I want to begin when we talk about uncomfortable topics, topics that might push back on your preconceived assumptions about the world. You see, we're in a weird spot where, as we see this, I think Solomon was the first American. He really was. He was like the first man to be sad. Not because he didn't get what he wanted, not because like his daddy didn't hug him enough, right? He's sad because he got everything he wanted. He found that every single one of his pursuits ended in success, and yet at the end, he's like, what a waste of time. None of them gave me meaning, and apart from God, it is meaningless. He's the first American. We're the first, I would say, like, we're like the first group of people that's existed, at least in a long time, where like the majority of us are, are angry and, and upset, not because we don't have what we want, but because we actually started to get it, and it isn't satisfying. Let me give you a perfect example of this. One of my least favorite things to do in the entire world, you'll probably resonate with this, and this is such a, this is like first world problems, am I right? All right? Uh, buying, shopping for blue jeans. The worst, the worst thing ever, Right? And this is odd because, I don't know, a couple decades ago, that would have been a fairly simple process. Basically, one brand, find your size, live with it. And and along comes this consumer mindset where if you have more options, more choices, there'll be more joy. If you get more, and more is always better, then on the other side of it, you'll, you'll be happier. And what have we found out? The more options you have, the less joy and satisfaction you have in the choices you make. The more options there are, the more confused you are. I mean, maybe it's just me, but are, have you never been there when the waitress comes back and says, "Are you ready to order?" And you're like, "I'm I'm st- I'm still struggling with my options." And you're at an impasse, not because you're starving and not because you know, you won't get what you want, but the possibility of getting so many of the things you want cause confusion. You get this? So much so that we have a, an idol of comfort that Solomon wants to undermine for us. And the things we typically find meaning in, whether it's our own religiosity, whether it's our own, I'm sorry, political affiliation, whether it's our sense of money, there's there's a sense in which our idol of comfort is being undermined systematically for the rest of the chapters that Ecclesiastes walks us through the wisdom of Solomon. And every single moment, we're invited into this kind of difficult discernment. Here's where I would give you a little bit of help for the rest of the book of Ecclesiastes. There's this phrase that exists in, in dominant society, and it's this word called awkward. You heard this word, and I want you to beware of it, because here's what I would propose to you: awkwardness is not a sin. But amidst a society of people who are drunk on their own entitlement, amidst a society that idolizes comfort, awkwardness is a sin. Have you ever heard people talk about this? Like they're 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 kind of walking through, and they're like, "Whoa, he's he's really awkward." He's just, he's socially awkward. As if he like broke one of the commandments. Right? I mean like, oh my goodness, oh, he's awkward. Well, did, well, did you talk to that person? Well, I, don't, I don't want to talk about that. That's, that would be awkward. You get this? Can I just warn you? That notion is the result of a bunch of people so drunk on their own entitlement and so overly satisfied with everything that they wanted such that now even the creature comforts that are robbed from us feel like dramatic offenses. Heard this? Now, ultimately, this is blown up for us by Jesus. Jesus was really good at intentionally, everywhere he went, having awkward conversations. That's kind of his thing. So here's what I would argue. Solomon invites us into, uh, to consider the possibility that our own sense of comfort is robbing us of greater joy. And that sometimes the best thing, and I'm following Jesus' own footsteps here, sometimes the best thing for your idolatry is for someone to poke their nose into your face and have an awkward conversation. You know, to talk about the thing that everyone knows about you, but no one has the guts to tell you. That's what we see here. So he begins with, religion or religiosity. What it is that we believe are, we would say, like kind of the the customs even of of worship. So he begins, it says this phrase, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Now he knew what he was talking about. He spent uh, all the money and energy he could to build the temple that he's referring to. Over 150,000 people were part of this project. He created the house of God that is the temple in Jerusalem. Now don't don't be too impressed by that because the next chapter in 1 Kings after we understand that Solomon built this ornate and beautiful house of God is it's where the American kicks in and he builds a house for himself, a palace for himself and palaces and houses for his wives and mistresses. And wouldn't you know it, the house he built for himself has twice as many square feet as the temple he built for God. So you see, this idolatry starts to kick in and he, he knows what he's talking about. So he says, guard your steps, literally watch your feet or like consider the direction of your feet. And so worship begins by thinking very critically about this. Check your feet. Where are they currently pointing? Like, where are you going? Because what we find is that people will worship. You will worship. The question is not, will you worship? The question is, what or who will you worship? And for us, worship, as we see here, is a vector. It's a direction. It's a a location. It's an end that we're headed. So here's what I would ask you. What are you currently, the language of, in, in our church we use regularly is, is, what are you currently investing your time, your treasure, and your talent into? Where is all of that going? Where does your time go? Who or what gets the most of it? Where does your treasure go? Who or what is the, the, the recipient of all your money? I mean, who you're really generous to? Who do you hold nothing back to when you spend money? And then your talents. Like, like, you know what I'm talking about. You know how you're just kind of like, halfway putting your a little bit of effort into a bunch of things but then there's that thing you really get excited for that thing you really get up early in the morning for the thing you really accessorize for you know what i'm talking this is a men and women thing the thing that you tend to buy the most accessories for you now you're getting it this is this is what we're worshiping what's the what's the thing you're currently pursuing What are you pouring yourself into? What are you currently trying to accomplish? Where are you going? Where do you see yourself in 10, 20, 30, 50 years? And where you see yourself will begin to unfold where you're going, where your feet are headed, and then ultimately what you worship. So at the very least, what we do when we get together is we consider the possibility that it might not be what we say it is. Although we might say we believe one thing functionally, we probably believe another. So what are you investing in? Put it this way, what's the thing that you're most offended by and upset by when it doesn't go your way? What's the thing that frustrates you more than anything else? And that might be an indication at what you're currently worshiping. I would add to that, I mean, if, if in, in terms of like, where are your feet currently pointing? Where are you currently working on? Where are you investing in? What are you toiling towards? If you're not sure, here's a little, a little axiom for you. Turn around. Your footprints won't lie. Just, just turn around. Look, look where you've come from. Be honest with yourself and see what you're tracking in. And here's the fun thing about life. There's this kind of an honest set of people that usually God puts around you and there's an honest set of circumstances and they don't lie. And they tell you exactly what you probably don't want to know. However, if you're currently just letting your own footprints remain in a blind spot, then we saw this last chapter. The best thing for you is inviting someone in close enough proximity who can throw the flag on you and tell you that you're a liar. And say, I know. I hear you saying this is what you want. I hear you saying that's what you're going to do. But if you look behind you, um, there is no evidence that that's the direction of your life. And that can often be one of the most loving things. Why? Because it begins to protect our own hearts from the kinds of idolatry, the things that we currently worship or ascribe value to that are not God, that will ultimately, according to the entirety of the book of Ecclesiastes, leave you in despair. And you'll say it's meaningless. So we check our feet. We draw near, it says, to listen. Because in the end, it says here in verse 1 that as we draw close to God and draw near to listen, that's actually better than our own sense of sacrifice. One of the quotes you'll hear us, one of our favorite kind of dead theologians, a pastor theologian by the name of A.W. Tozer, puts it this way. You've heard me say this before. Um, Man, those quotation marks backwards messes me up. They really bother me. Does that bother anyone else? I have a problem. (sighs) What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. When I tell you to think about who God is and what He has done, you will, I believe, uncover, if Tozer is right, and I think he's got most of the ecclesiastes to back me up on this, that's the most important thing about you. I mean, what you, what you really functionally believe about God, that's the most important thing about you. Because almost every single time, what follows is who you really believe you are you don't believe me you ever ever met somebody hi how are you doing and there's this little moment where you and I'm, I'm getting better at this I'm not great but like there's this moment where we introduce ourselves and you go into the the who you are part right some people are good at it but there's something amazing that happens right you ever met that guy that just immediately starts telling you his resume or that girl who immediately wants to prove how smart she is or you met that person And functionally, what they believe about God, namely that maybe their God is their sense of approval, their God is a sense of wanting to impress someone, maybe their God is their sense of achievement, that will be the first foot they put forward. That will be the thing that they introduce themselves with, that will be the thing that they want you to know about them before anything else. And functionally, they will put forth the most important pieces of information based on what they truly worship. Hi, I'm so and so. I do some I do this. Now, I don't want to scare you into not getting to know people. Right now you're gonna be like, hi, I'm uh, I am a child of God. <laughs> I mean, like, okay, it's not this is not Sunday school where you try to impress the person, but but I want you to think very critically, like, where are you going? What do you value? Because functionally what you worship will give you a sense of identity. And if we're not careful, if those are the things that we put forward and they're not the love and care and accomplishment of God on our behalf in Jesus Christ, then something else will come out that will ultimately lead us to despair. And it will lead other people into despair. Because you can say whatever you want, you can lie. The hardest lies to see are the ones that you tell to yourself and you actually believe. And you can say whatever you want to about yourself. But when you really look and find yourself and define yourself by the most valuable things in your life, something amazing happens. And he says, so guard, guard your direction. Where are you going? Is it for the glory of God and the joy that only he gives? Or are you functionally taking it into your own hands? The next thing he says, we draw near to listen because it's better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. I don't know how much time I'll spend on this, but this is profound. Worship is less about what you say and more about what you listen to. I know I ended that word with a preposition. It's for, for emphasis, okay? So worship is less about the things you do and say. It's more about the things you submit to. It's more about like real honor, real glory that you give in your life is less about what you do and it's more about what you stop doing to listen to. So, so where and, and, and in what, what aspects of your life do you stop, listen, and learn? Do you find yourself having actual humility and you find yourself being silent because you want to know what happens next? You want to hear and listen and learn. Who do you listen to? Who do you listen to the most? Where's the place where you stop and you really get your information about the world? Is it Fox News? MSNBC? Huffington Post? Your Facebook page? Where do you actually stop and listen? Where do you stop and then let other people and other influences begin to shape you? That is a form of worship. In fact, we find here that it might be the most important, most intimate form of worship. This is important for us because um, often what happens is we are we, we distract ourselves by what we think we ought to do, and what we, I think what we find is those who are shaped by the gospel, those who call themselves Christians, maybe if, you, maybe if you aren't a Christian, I'm glad you're here kind of seeing this from the outside, and I want you to see this is what we really believe. We, we as Christians don't really find our identity in what we have done, but we find our identity in what God has done. Like We think that our, our strongest moments are not in what we have accomplished because we only teem, tend to bring sin, death, and destruction to the table. But our greatest strength is when we admit that weakness and lean on the accomplished and finished work of Jesus. It is finished, he says. One of the last things he said on the cross. So that we would know it's done. You don't have to do anymore. This is taken care of. Trust me on this. So, we find our identity in his completed work, not in the things that we would accomplish. Now, what's crept into strange American prosperity forms of Christianity, or or I stand up here and I tell you all the things that you ought to do and all the things that you should stop doing. And some of you crave that. Right now, you wish I would just tell you what would fix everything. And it's like, uh, Jesus, every time. Every, no, no, seriously, I have these two jobs and I don't know which to take. Well, friend, if your identity is not in Christ, then they will both be terrible, right? Well, I don't know who to date. Well, if your identity is not in Christ, you'll kill them and you. I mean, like this, this is how this ends every single time. This, every time this ends in futility and vanity and it's created this way such that we would look away from those things, find our identity and God's finished work, the, the kind of work that he doesn't back out on. He doesn't change his mind based on what you bring to the table. Instead, grace just abounds with all the filth you bring to the table. This is where we find our identity, such that now real worship is a disposition. It is a a position under something. So where do you listen? Newsflash, if you can't think of a place where you listen, then this one's easy for you. You think you're God, and you wish everyone else would listen to you. But ultimately, worship is the result of listening. This is important for us, uh, because maybe some of you are from a low church background um, where, where it's all about how much enthusiasm and passion and, and expression that you bring to the table. That's what worship is. It's, it's all about what you bring, what, what you feel and what you experience. Right, this, and, and this is going to be a detriment to you. One of the most important postures that we take in worship time, because this is a posture that we take through life, is what you're doing right now. You are sitting, you're listening. And in fact, it may be the most profound form of worship that you experience. In fact, what I've found is sometimes all the hype, shouting, is a distraction from a deep, a profound and substantive emptiness. But from some of you, maybe you're from more of a high church background. Well, then th- there's kind of the same thing. You think like, if, if we just bring the right order, and God is God is. Remember, it's remember. I just push back in the moment, be like, but like God is not impressed by your use of beseech and thee and thou. You know, we beseech thee, brother, for thy. And if that, if you don't understand that, you don't good. You don't have all the the baggage I have. But but there's kind of this sense in which, like, if you're maybe from that background. The order and, and discipline is what, value, is what is valued. And as you draw to God, you, you, it's what you bring to the table and the orderliness and the cleanliness of it. That this, this is the structure that brings value and that God honors. And both of those can be a deep and profound distraction from the fact that you are just making a lot of noise to hide from what you know will inevitably come in the Silence. And both sides are meant to lay that down and begin to listen. Now you'll say, well, what about you? You're standing up there talking. Well, I hope I'm leading by example. If I say, if I say anything meaningful on a Sunday morning or any other time, I'll, I'll give you right at it. it will only be, if I even stumble on something meaningful, it will only be a result of listening that I've presumably been doing before this moment if I have not been listening, if I have not been sitting under this Word, not lording over it to figure it out and master it, but if I haven't been sitting under it, well, then this is what happens. I am bringing a sacrifice of fools, and I am inviting you into a sacrifice of fools. A sense in which we distract ourselves from God's finished work such that we just kind of make much of ourselves. So, side note, if you ever want to love and care for a pastor, me specifically, one of the best things you can do for me is help create space for listening. We saw this in Acts chapter 6. The church started getting crazy. The diversity of the church started making relationships difficult. And they, and they appointed deacons, these people that would come along and serve. Why? Why did they do that? So that the leaders could devote themselves to the ministry of the word and the ministry of prayer. Because after all, real worship is not what you do, it's what you sit under, it's what you listen to. And I can't tell you how tempting it is for you, for maybe some of your gospel community leaders, and for me to invest all of our time in the visibly fruitful things and ignore the things that actually have power over us. So if you want to encourage me or love a pastor or love a teacher, encourage them and help create space for them to listen Because ultimately, even if what I say isn't coming from a place of deep and humble listening, then what does it sell in verse 2? You're going to be rash with your mouth. You're going to let your heart be hasty. You're going to utter a word before God. It says that God's in heaven. That's That's not a geographical statement. That's an authority statement. It's saying, look, God is the heavenly one. You are not. God is the eternal one. You are not stop and listen to God, be shaped by God speaking. That's what's most important. Have you at least got a few circumstances where you can relate to this? Where the thing that you said, your mouth got you into trouble? Now this is ironic because this applies to both of us, but it just kind of spreads out differently. You'll hear me say this a lot. You extroverts in the room, you know what this is like. And if you're like me, you're regularly going to have to repent of things that you said that you shouldn't have said. You're regularly going to have to ask forgiveness for things that you said and you didn't, you were hasty, you were rash and you said it and you're going to have to ask for forgiveness for those things. But the rest of you aren't off the hook. You're just more sneaky in your sin. So some of you who are more introverted. You are regularly going to have to repent of things that you didn't say, but you know that you should have. And there is a hastiness of speech here that can happen both in the blabbing of the mouth, but it can also happen in the hiding of truth. Both of them are a cowardice. Both of them are, are a distraction. So it says, be not rash with these things. Instead, let your words be, free, be few. For a dream that is an aspiration, like a, a desire for something, it comes and it, it creates much busyness, a lot of action, and a fool's voice comes with many words. Then he moves on to kind of the last step of worship before he moves on to politics and wealth. He says, when you make a vow to God, when, not if, notice he said, when you commit to God, we call ourselves to repent and to commit to God. When you make a vow to God, don't delay in paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. So this is, I would just describe it this way. Do you, uh, maybe the best way to ask it is like in a third person. Do you know someone who regularly makes commitments that they always fail to keep? Right? They, like, they always say, yeah, I'm going to do that. I'm going to do that. I'm going to get to that. I'm going to get to that. Right? I, I mean, I've done this. And there's this strange thing. with is this If you don't know someone like this, maybe this is you. There's this sense in which it feels good, doesn't it? When you tell someone you're going to do something nice for them, it, it almost like, feels like you have the reward immediately. Right? Like, hey, I'm going to take you out to dinner this week. And in that moment, the person who says that makes that promise like, yeah, I'm a good person because I'm going to do that. But if you find yourself regularly on one end or the other of those kinds of commitments that never come to fruition, hang on, you might be making a, a promise that you have no ability to keep. In fact, that promise might be a form of a sacrifice for fools. It might be a pleasure for a fool, but in the end, it's a distraction from real integrity. And so what happens is we'll make vows, we'll make promises that maybe we don't intend to keep that will will give us a short-term pleasure, but will cause a long-term destruction. you seen these? You make a, a vow, a promise, and in the end, what you're really trying to do is to assert your own sovereignty. I've heard it this way. My father, he abandoned me, he beat me. And so I'm never going to trust another man again. It's a little vow. A little vow that protects and gives a little bit of pleasure in the short term. But in the end, causes more destruction. You ever seen one of these vows? I promise I'll do this. God, if you'll just get me out of this, I swear I'll do this. You start to bribe and you start to Begin to assert your own sovereignty, even in this case, maybe over God. You see, religiosity, the work of outward religion, the practice of religion, can often become something not based on what we believe, but based on the structures and rituals that give us meaning. And in effect, what they do is they imply to God that he now owes you. Now, we've talked about this at length elsewhere. It's like, it's like rubbing a, like a lucky rabbit's foot, right? As if like rubbing the rabbit's foot makes powers that be owe you something and it's like God's sitting up there and he's like well I was going to curse you but you rubbed that rabbit's foot so you're right here right you've seen this and that may seem silly okay but now replace rabbit's foot with the thing that you know you won't avoid doing in the morning that one thing oh you know you're not going to skip that I'm not going to start my day off without well maybe it's not a lucky rabbit's foot But it can become something that in effect we exert our own sovereignty over in the short term hoping that somehow God will owe us and in effect we've said we are God. God, I swear if if you get me out of this, I'll do this as if God owes you. Or that we'll make a short term promise. I promise I won't do this again when in reality we just want to feel better about ourselves, experience that worship. Do you know what this looks like? Because in the end what we believe about God will be evident and will be the most important thing about us. And if what we believe about God is that he owes us, well then, friend, you think you're God. And he says that ultimately that will lead to destruction. Then he moves on to where it gets a little messier. He says, if you see in the province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. Now we talked about this more at length last week about oppression as it exists should not be a surprise for the Christian. If we really recognize our own individual depravity, when we recognize the darkness that exists in our own hearts, it shouldn't surprise us that when we get together in the organizations we make, there's also some depravity systemically involved, right? This shouldn't surprise us. It shouldn't, systemic injustice, systemic depravity shouldn't surprise us. In fact, as Christians, we should be the first one to admit it. We should be the first ones to say, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of complicit in it to the point where we even saw. If you find yourself thinking, right? If you find yourself thinking, well, I just, you know, I don't know who the oppressor is. Remember, this is like crazy uncle, what's her face, or what's his face? I don't know who that is in your family, right? You know, I, I said, you know, crazy, crazy aunt Carol, whatever. Like that's whoever that is. If you can't name that person in your family, you're that person. And the same thing is true. If you can't name injustice or oppression. Be careful, you might be complicit in it. You might actually be a part of it. The same thing is true here. It shouldn't surprise you. Don't be amazed at the matter. High, official, high officials have those above them, and then there's even some above them, and, and there's an injustice that happens across the spectrum. And if you lean a little further left, you will probably lean toward believing that the, the rich and the wealthy are the ones that are in evil, and they're a, they're a cancer on on our own society and but if you lean a little more right you'll tend to think that the poor are the ones that are a kind of a cancer on our society and what i would argue is that the injustice and unfairness happens across you you end up overtaxing people in such a way that it doesn't actually benefit the people that need it and everyone loses this shouldn't surprise you I'll, I'll just beat you in, 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 what, three years now when we do this all again and we try to elect another president, okay? The one thing you, having listened to this after today, can't do is act surprised, okay? Again, He just says, please don't be amazed, right? So when things don't turn out as bad as you thought they were for the next three years or as good as you thought they were for the next three years, please, there's nothing new under the sun, it happens. Thank God our hope is not in this And when we see that injustice, we ought to be the first ones to admit it, to point it out, and begin to think critically about our own complicity or involvement in it. Because pursuing that kind of power will corrupt. He says that that kind of corruption even affects money. He says that he who loves money will not be satisfied with money. It ends up being futility. It says, nor he who loves wealth with his income, this also is vanity. Now, this is important because this is from a person who is speaking from the top of the Ponzi scheme. This is the guy who had all the power. This is the guy who had all the wealth. And this is the perfect case of the rich get richer. There's one case in which we see the the queen of Sheba, another wealthy person, comes to visit Solomon, is so impressed with his wealth and so impressed with his wisdom that she gives him more wealth, right? Like, I'm so amazed at your wealth. Here's more. it boggles the mind, right? Rich get richer. And from the top of the Ponzi scheme, from the top of the ladder, he's looking down and saying, in a way that you and I probably can't, there's oppression here. And even if you think that it will satisfy you to get to that point, that if you think there's a comfort level that comes from your own achievement and the cruel of wealth, you end up in despair. It's futility, it's vanity. And he leaves us with a dark thought. It's a grievous evil. That in the end, death is the final revelation of any and all misplaced human values. Death reveals what you worship. Remember where he began? He said, Check your feet, check where you're going. And he ends by telling us, Death reveals your feet. Death is the ultimate equalizer. It is the final arbiter. It's the place where you no longer have the ability to convince or sell anyone else on something other than the truth. And what is left, other people will actually get to say. As a person who's invited to do funerals, I just gotta ask you, what do you expect them to say? What do you expect them to say? What do you want them to remember? What do you want them to talk about? And your answer reveals your feet. Your answer reveals what you really value, what you really worship. And the things that you are so afraid of them saying when you're dead and gone reveals what you really value. And the things that you wish that they would say reveals what you really worship. I pray, I hope, that if this is the case, one day what I really value hits the fan and they, there's nowhere to hide it. And I pray that they say he was a messenger, let's put him in the ground and let the message go on. But I'm afraid that if you looked at my time, talent, and treasure, then you might find that my feet and maybe even your feet are pointed at something a little bit differently than you aspire to. And maybe you're heading in a direction that's different. And I would argue will end in futility. I have good news for you. The futility that comes from aiming for things less than God is picked up in Romans chapter 8. And he says that the nature of creation in futility and vanity is not an accident, but it's meant to be a canvas for something that God is doing for us in Jesus. Paul tells the church at Rome, for the creation was subjected to futility. Not willingly. No one would want that. But because of him who subjected it. In hope that the creation itself will one day be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. The children of God. So when you set your feet to draw near to God, is it with a lot of fanfare or is it like a child who bursts into a mother or father's presence because ultimately the meaninglessness that we tend to experience is meant to be a backdrop it's meant to be a canvas an appetizer if you will that gives us a greater and more lasting hunger for something that only God can satisfy And I have good news. He's not withholding that satisfaction from you. He has freely given it to you. He has poured out the wealth of heaven in Jesus Christ so that now the satisfaction you hunger for is waiting for you at a cross. And the identity that you really want, the victory and achievement that you really want is waiting for you inside of an empty tomb to say that the thing that you desire, the thing that you aspire to has already been made available to you. Oh, friends, check your feet. May it be said that the greatest value in all of heaven emptied out for you and for me on the cross is the greatest value of our life. Because otherwise it's vanity. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your mercy on us. Uh, We thank you even for the enunciation of difficult and even awkward news. We admit that we regularly want to find comfort and satisfaction apart from you. Uh, if it was up to us, we would do everything we can uh, to wrestle it down for ourselves. As if there's someone in this room, if uh, they've come in here this morning and, and maybe this, this good news of what you've accomplished for us seems far-fetched, it seems like a fairy tale, maybe seems too good to be true or even too inconceivable to believe, I'm so grateful, God, that you've brought them here. I pray that first you would grant a comfort to them to know that they have drawn near and it is not with vanity, uh, but you have brought them here. And the second thing I pray that you would begin to instill in them is a curiosity, open their eyes and open their own ability to believe and conceive of the possibility that you have done something greater, greater than anything we could accomplish or amass for ourselves. God, for the rest of us, maybe we know this good news, or maybe even now our hearts are beginning to be opened to it. We're beginning to feel that that victory that allows us to be, even though it feels like futility in our own life, that we ultimately are adopted into a family such that we can be sons and daughters of the Most High God. And we know this, but if we were really honest, our trajectory is for other things. And if someone were to really assess where we invest our time, talent, and treasure, and if someone were to really assess the way we invest our, our worry, our anxiety, and our energy, that probably wouldn't be anything that looks like you, would you begin to open our eyes to the possibility that that's futility? That real destruction doesn't necessarily come from failing to achieve it, but real destruction comes from possibly, like Solomon, achieving it and looking back knowing that you've wasted your entire life trying to do something that means nothing. Chasing the Chasing the wind. So instill in us a sense of excitement. Rally in us a sense of joy and your accomplished work in Jesus Christ. May we look away from our own work. May we look away from the despair and meaninglessness of this life and see the joy that you have granted to us freely and graciously in Jesus Christ for the life to come. I thank you for this life. May it begin to come about and be evident even in this moment. In Jesus' name, amen.